Father God, as we come this morning and prepare to gather around the table of Jesus Christ, uh, we cast our minds back to that occasion when Jesus met with his disciples. When he was there with 12 who were intimate friends, people whom he dearly loved, and how he gave them this meal as a way of remembering him. Lord, we pray that you would teach us more of what all of that means. And above all, that you would draw us into the company of those who are your dear friends. That we may be people who gather appropriately at this meal. That we may be like those first disciples, people who are getting to know you and who love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Later in this morning's service, we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, We're going to break bread to remind us of the body of Jesus broken for us. And we're going to take wine to remind us of Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We're going to do that this morning, and then we'll do that again in June. And anyone who's been here with us for a number of years will know that the June communion serves a a very special purpose in our church life here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. It's the, the time, the one Sunday in the year, when we receive all of our new communicants for a given church year. It's become a real highlight, I think, in our church calendar here, a real, a real day when we celebrate what God has been doing among us. E- even though I, I think that's a very exciting occasion for us, I'm imagining that there's probably a little bit of confusion in the congregation about what's actually going on there. People aren't quite sure, at least not everybody is quite sure, what it is to be a communicant. So I want to deal with that confusion with a short series asking the question and dealing with it, what is a communicant? And by the time we're finished, I hope that we've cleared up the confusion, but I hope actually that we've done more than that. I hope that everyone in the congregation will be in a better position to decide whether they could be a communicant, whether that's an appropriate commitment for them to make at this point in their lives. Before I charge ahead and talk about what it means to be a communicant, I want to make a distinction for you between two words that we use here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Two words that do carry a different meaning. Whenever a person joins the church, they can join in one of two ways. They can join as a member or as a communicant. And maybe at this point, it'd be best if I just explain the difference between those two. What's a member? Well, anybody who enjoys coming along to church services, enjoys being a part of the worshiping community here, and then realizes, I'd like to to be part of that group. I'd like to commit myself to that church, to that group of people. That person is welcome to become a member. So membership's open to everyone. 
You don't have to make a profession of Christian faith to be a member. And you don't have to to promise anything uh, to this congregation uh, to be a member. None of those things are required of a member. Whenever a person joins as a member, they're entitled to some benefits that a person wouldn't get if they hadn't yet joined as a member. So, for example, you'd be assigned to a, a, a district in our church life that means that the, the minister uh, and the elders would be looking out for you in a pastoral way. It means that you would uh, be given a, a set of envelopes allowing you to contribute in a regular way to the life of the church. It means that any other circular distributions uh, made here by the church would find their way to you. All of those things uh, would happen for a person who's a member. In a sense, when you join as a member... You're, you're simply saying, I want to be part of things here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. I'm happy to be known to the leadership of, of this congregation. That's what we mean when we talk about a member. But when we talk about a communicant, we mean something different. A communicant is a person who is willing and able to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. A communicant is also a person who's made commitments to this local body of Christ's people, this local congregation. So in addition to the advantages of membership, when you join as a communicant, then then there are slightly different advantages beyond just membership. A, A person has, I guess, a visible and a tangible moment when they made a profession of faith. That can be a very powerful thing in in your life to stand here before God and before a community of people and know that you've professed your faith. Whenever you join as a communicant, the leadership view you as a brother and sister in Christ, someone whom they can approach in those terms. Uh, The pastoral support we provide you uh, will come knowing that you're a brother or sister in Christ. You'll have made promises to be committed uh, and to be serving in church life. Well, we might just take you up on those uh, when you've made those promises as a communicant. So it gives opportunities for service here in the community. There's one last distinctive aspect of what it is to be a communicant that I want to flag up for you this morning. In Presbyterian church law, only communicants are allowed to vote. Now, that might sound really exclusive, like we're not allowing some people here this morning to vote. It might sound like it's, it's favoritism towards the communicants. Let me explain why that's, that's not the case and why that's an, an entirely appropriate uh, way to structure church life. Communicants, remember what we've said so far, communicants are the ones who've made a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. Communicants are the ones who have promised uh, their, their committed involvement in, in this particular congregation. And when you see that, all of a sudden you see it's actually quite appropriate that those people are the ones who are given the responsibility uh, to vote on significant moments in church life. So whenever it comes to electing a new committee or electing new elders or even calling a new minister to a church, it'll only be 
communicant members who have a vote in that process. But I hope as I've explained that to you, you'll see how entirely appropriate that is. We have produced a while ago a little brochure called Thinking of Joining. And I have some copies in in this color here, so that'll help you to find it. Some copies of this available in the vestibule today. It explains everything that I've said there and a little bit more in a bit more detail. So have a look at that on the way out this morning. Lift one of those if you'd be interested to find out more about that. Now that we've worked out in broad terms what it is to be a communicant, made the distinction between a communicant and a member, I want to fill out the picture a wee bit more fully of of what a communicant really is. And I thought probably the best and the clearest way to do that would be to spend some time looking at the vows that a person makes when they become a communicant in our church. In our June communion, I'm going to ask all the new communicants either to make for the first time or to reaffirm a set of vows, and I'll show you them here on the screen just now. There are four, but I wasn't able to fit them all on one slide. So these are the promises, exactly as we'll use them in the June communion. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you promise to join faithfully with your fellow Christians in worship on the Lord's Day and to be faithful in reading the Bible and in prayer? Do you promise to give a fitting proportion of your time, talents, and money for the church's work in the world? Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to confess Christ openly, to serve him in your daily occupations, and to walk in his ways all the days of your life? This morning and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at these commitments in a little bit more detail. And we're going to start this morning with the first one. When you look at the first one there, strictly speaking, it's not a promise. It's a a confession of faith, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Simply put, This question is asking a person to confirm that they are a true Christian. Now, when you look at this profession of faith, as easy to see what it does say, it's it's interesting to see what it doesn't say. We can see here very clearly what a Christian is not. A Christian isn't somebody who simply believes the right things. There's a verse there in chapter 2 and verse 19 of James Where James says, you believe that there's one God, good, even the demons believe that. Okay, so believing in our heads that in God gets us actually nowhere. Because the demons, the very forces most opposed to God believe that as well. So it's not about believing the right things. A Christian isn't someone who does the right things. In Romans 3, verse 23, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, of the standards that God sets us. So if there's a group of people who can be right before God by doing the right things, Paul tells us 
There's nobody in that group. Nobody has met God's standards by doing the right things. A Christian isn't someone who's undergone the right ceremonies. That's important for us to think about maybe in this context. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus says, To love God with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, they were the ceremonies of Jesus' day. And Jesus says, no, that's not the heart of it. It's loving God that that lies at the very heart of it. In his book, Life in Christ, John Stott points us to a New Testament definition of a Christian. He says, a Christian is a person in Christ. It's necessary to insist, therefore, that according to Jesus and his apostles, to be a Christian is not just to have been baptized, to belong to a church, to receive Holy Communion, to believe in the doctrines of the creed, or to try to follow the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. Baptism and Holy Communion, church membership, creed and conduct are all important parcels of living as a Christian. But they can form and sometimes have formed an empty casket from which the jewel has disappeared. The jewel is Jesus Christ himself. To be a Christian is to be in union with Jesus Christ Folks, can I offer you a summary of that long quote and frame it in the terms that we're talking about here this morning? To be a communicant doesn't make us a Christian. But to be a a real living Christian makes us people who can appropriately be communicants. There are some people here this morning, communicants and those who aren't, who, who are confused about all of this, genuinely confused about whether they, they truly are in Christ, whether they're Christians or not. I recently came across a, a four-step process that, that's often used for leading people to Christ. It, it might be for somebody here this morning that this will be a useful framework for you to consider your own position. First of all, for each one of us, there's something to admit. We need to admit our need of God. We need to admit that we've sinned against God and that we need his forgiveness. Sin means going our own way, not God's way. It means doing our own thing and not doing the things that God has called us to do. The same verse up there that we've already noticed from Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Folks, there's something that we must admit. And that is that we need God's forgiveness. It's a crucial first step for anybody who is to be in Christ. Then there's something to believe. We must believe that Christ has died for us. That's why Jesus came. He came to die for the sin 
of human people on the cross. This was very explicit from day one of Jesus' public ministry. Whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus arriving on the horizon, he pointed at him and he said, Look, there's the Lamb of God. And by that he was comparing Jesus to the the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb of the Jewish temple system. The one who died because of sin. So that's immediately apparent in Jesus' ministry. Whenever Jesus was teaching himself, he told us that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter, one of the disciples, I don't know if you remember, there's the scene where Peter was very opposed. He didn't want Jesus to die, and Jesus had to say, get behind me. Well, later in his life, Peter understood it all much more clearly, and he was able to write In his first letter, he was able to explain this. He said, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. (coughs) Folks, we need to admit that we need God's forgiveness. We need to believe that Jesus offers that forgiveness to us. And then thirdly, there's something that we must consider. Jesus has to come first in our lives. Whenever we come back to the profession of faith, I don't have this slide up just now, you'll notice that it asks us, first of all, to profess our belief in God, but then also to confess that Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord. It's my my impression that Ulster is full of people who want Jesus Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord. They want to know that their sins are forgiven. They want to know that there's a place for them in heaven, but they don't want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of their lives. They don't want him in in charge of their time and their money and their homes and and all other aspects of their lives. Folks, I'm not entirely convinced that Jesus Christ can be or is a savior to those who don't receive him as Lord. I'm not sure there's any biblical integrity in that position. So I want to to flag this up for you this morning and to say that for each one of us, as well as something to admit and believe or something to consider, and and that is the, the, the cost the commitment to Jesus Christ that's required of us. The the verse I I flagged up here, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. True Christians don't just have a savior. They have a new boss. They live for Jesus Christ. The the last thing I want to mention here this morning, there's also something that we must do. We must take that step. We must give our life over to Jesus Christ at some point. As we give our lives over to Jesus, he gives his very life to us. His spirit, he gives us to indwell us. Yesterday, I stood right here and married two people. And I thought it was quite a good analogy 
for what happens when a person finally commits themselves to Jesus Christ. Whenever I was married all those years ago, it's going to be 10 years uh, this year, the minister asked me, Christoph, will you have this woman? And I said, I will. And he turned to Claire and he, he asked her, will you have this man? And fool that she is, she said, I will. And folks, that's how it is when a person comes to Jesus Christ. Because the question rings out to the Savior, Savior, will you have this sinner? And he says, I will. Because he always does. And the question then comes to us, standing there beside Christ, will you take this Savior? And we must. We must say, I will. We must commit ourselves to him, forsaking all others. We must take Christ. Folks, from that point on, when we do that, when we say, I will, to Christ who calls us, then, then we are truly in Christ. We're true Christians. We began this morning by thinking about what a true communicant is. And we've moved very quickly to thinking about what a, what a real Christian is. What kind of a person can make this profession of faith that's the first of the communicant's vows? As I close this morning, I want to ask you, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to him? Have you said, I do, to the Savior who offers himself to you? I'm thinking here this morning of people who know they aren't Christians. And I'm speaking particularly to you. I'm asking you to consider that this morning. Have you taken a step of commitment to Jesus Christ? And if not, will you? But I'm thinking too of people who've been communicants maybe. For years and for years and for years. Some time ago you did take those communicants vows. You made an outward profession of faith. But the truth is that you made those vows and the reality of them hasn't been there in your life. For one reason or another you came to that point whether it was a a social pressure, whether it was a rite of passage here in the the Presbyterian church or some other church, you ended up here, you made that public profession, but actually you didn't really know what was involved or, or, or didn't take it seriously at the time. I want to plead with you this morning, even if you're somebody who's already made a profession of faith, find Christ. 
And, and if it seems a little bit awkward, if it seems a little bit awkward for somebody who's been a communicant for 30 or for 40 or for 50 years to say, oh, I, I want to become a Christian. So what? So what? If it seems like the cart is entirely before the horse and you've, you've lived the whole of your life the wrong way around, forget about that. Don't worry about it. Because our God is a God who loves, who loves to sort things out. He loves to take things that are a mess and make them right. Things that are wrong and make them good. As I close this morning, and as I talk here particularly about people who have been communicants for years, finally coming to faith, can I tell you a secret? I've seen this happen. Loads of times. I've been with women and with men who have been good Presbyterians, communicants, sometimes even elders. And I've seen them come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing when a person who's been living a dead formality comes to life. When a woman who's been living in drab black and white, her life finally burst into color. Maybe there's someone here this morning. And our name, your name is on our communion roll. It's been there for forever. But you don't know Jesus. Not in the terms I've been talking about here this morning. If you'd like to, to straighten that out, if you'd like to get the cart and the horse in the right order, if you'd like to come and, and find Christ, please talk to somebody. Come and talk to me or, or somebody else in the church who you know to, to love Jesus. Come and talk to them. Come and find the, the jewel, the treasure that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we don't want to bluff our way with our outside structures and our, our, our churchianity. We want to be real before you. We want to be people who, who really have responded in a living and true way to Jesus Christ. Father God, we pray that as, as you are among us here, as your spirit has been prompting us this morning, we would all search our own hearts, that we would all know that we have said, I do to the Savior. Father God, in your mercy and your grace, reach us just now, we pray. Amen.